We're going to move on to Anglican spirituality. Very different kettle of fish, this, of course. Not least because it's a movement, it's Anglican spirituality, rather than a person. And it's also, if there are, um, I mean, I'm Anglican, there are lots of Anglicans here, I'm sure, and for most Anglicans, I think it's pretty difficult, actually, to define Anglican spirituality sometimes, because it's almost as a fish know it swims in water. Is that sort of, do we, do we know? Do we know what the hallmarks are of our tradition? Do we know what are the ways in which we discern God's presence, shape our lives, and allow ourselves to be transformed according to our tradition? We don't always know when we're right in the middle of something. So I'm going to start off with reading a short thing, which is one of them. It's not exclusive to the Anglican world, but this is a very Anglican piece of practice. I'm going to read you the collect for today. Almighty God, by whose grace alone we are accepted and called to your service, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and make us worthy of our calling through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. We use collects all the time in the Church of England in Anglican spirituality. And there's something which is, if you're used to Anglican worship and liturgy, there's something so familiar about the collect, about the general shape and form of it, that it's easy to forget that there is a purpose to the collect. It's about collecting the people before God. It's about collecting our prayers together as we move from one bit of the service to another bit of the service. And there's something about this word collect, collecting, which is typical of Anglican spirituality. I'll say a bit more about that later. But every time we pray a collect, we're being taken through a kind of a liturgical ritual. We're being taken through a petition. We're being taken through um, uh, a way of naming God. We name God's attribute, you are almighty. We pray. Uh, we evoke something new to happen. We do it in the name of Jesus. So we're taken through a form. And because we have a form, it can seem sometimes so familiar, sometimes quite dull, depending on which bit of the church you're in. I like it, personally. I don't find it dull. But I know that there are many people for whom things like the ritual of a collect is all a bit yawn. And there is something about that which there's a little bit of me that always wants to say, no, you're wrong, but I can't, you can't say some of their experience is wrong, but... There is something about that, that the familiarity sometimes causes us to trip up. So there's a, that's the collect for today, and we will pray collects every time we pray any sort of Anglican uh, liturgy. But now let's have a little bit of a look. In the booklet I've given you, I've got George Herbert there. Lovely George Herbert. And that is a very Anglican few words. I'll come on to that. But there are key features about the Anglican Church. It's so massive. Anglican spirituality and the Anglican tradition are so massive that I will only be touching things. Uh, it's actually a worldwide communion, as we know. And it stretches back hundreds of years. 
And Anglicanism is about the ecclesiology as well as the spirituality. It is immense. I will only be looking at some of the origins of it and the legacy. And the reason is that Anglican spirituality, what we're left with, was really shaped in the early stages of its formation. So some of the hallmarks we have now, which constitute Anglican spirituality, were triggered by the way in which the Anglican Church came into being all those centuries ago. And in a way, it's ironic or maybe understandable that some of the key features were formed at a time of religious chaos. Of course, Anglicanism came to birth at the time of the Reformation. It came to birth as a nation state. This, this nation was struggling to make sure it survived because of things like an air wasn't being produced that was required and so on and so forth. So in the middle of all this kind of personal tumult of monarchs, um, worry about whether the, the, the lineage would survive, Reformation on the continent, the Anglican Church was born at a time of chaos and folly and brokenness. And in the middle of all this, we get this tradition which has as some of its hallmarks things like holding things together. There is a commitment to the common in Anglican spirituality. There is a commitment to transformation in daily life. And all of this is kind of strange, but probably kind of natural given the context it arrived in. The Anglican tradition was also born out of the centuries beforehand of the early church and the Roman Catholic Church. So it draws on this great heritage behind it. It draws on the Benedictine. It draws on all these great movements. And then it also looks forward to this reformed church that we have now. It looks forward to the evangelical and all things that, that, that were to come in the future. But this particular period of time, it was, like, it was like a hinge. The Anglican Church was born in a hinge. And as a consequence, it is both Catholic and Reformed. Now, and as anybody who's Anglican knows, it does this extraordinary thing, which is it manages somehow still to hold tensions to this day. How? I'm not quite sure. And as we know, there's lots of um, kerfuffle and there's lots of potential splits and potential schisms. There's always something potentially awful about to happen in the Anglican Church. But something in its structure and in its spirituality holds together. And that, I think, was partly to do with the genius of what happened as the church was formed early on. So it went through um, a deeper reformation than some of the churches around at the time, and it didn't go as far as other churches at the time. It kind of sits in the middle of, of the Catholic and the very reformed of that period. And of course, because of Elizabeth, who was a bit of a genius at this point, and the people that were gathered around her, what you get is, depending on your view, a bit of a mishmash and a compromise 
or a very, very canny holding together of traditions. If you look through things like the Book of Common Prayer, you will see things sitting side by side and you think, gosh, this is interesting. Is this because these genuinely sit together or that something has been constructed in Anglicanism which it says they do fit together? Honestly, they do. They really do. So when you get to the Eucharist, for example, a BCP Eucharist, you'll get this extraordinary um, sacramental act which is both profoundly, profoundly sacramental and you have a sense of the real presence the real presence, not the real presence, but on the other side you say that it's an act of remembrance. So you get two very distinctive views held together in one piece of liturgy. This may sound weird, or you may think, yeah, absolutely, but there's something about this holding together which is right at the centre of Anglican spirituality. It was a church born in compromise and in the need to hold together the people of God in this country. So it's got this holding together. There's also something about the church where it has a commitment to the common. Of course we talk about the Book of Common Prayer. These days, of course, we have common worship common in the sense of the, the Anglican church as it developed and as it has come to be is about something which is owned and held by the people. One of the really big issues of course when the Anglican church came into being was that in great tumult English became the lingua franca for want of a better phrase for worship in this country rather than Latin. So suddenly Worship was held by the common people. Common is the word, which is everything is held in common. And if you look at the, um, the, there were two great, great documents for this. One is the 39 Articles, one is the Book of Common Prayer, of course. And then in the 39 Articles, Article number 24, they were quite ripe with their language. Article number 24 says, Of speaking in the congregation in such a tongue as the people understandeth, that's the crucial thing. It is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understanded of the people. So it was really clear, no messing here, all the language of worship has to be held by the people. It is common. Now, the, the 39 articles exist in uh, manuscripts and there is the, um, it's the, it's the Parker, I'm looking at Leslie now, it's the Parker Museum, isn't it? Yeah, which we went to one day, so I know. And what you get there in, the, in, in Cambridge is um, the original documents, it's worth going to see, the original documents of the 39 articles. It's fascinating. And what you also see is where people scrubbed them out. They started out as 41, I think, or 42. And they already sat round as a committee and said, well, that's not going to work, is it? And put a line through it. So you get the documents there of things where they've got no red line through that one, that's not going to work. And they wound up with the 39 articles that we now have. So this is a spirituality which is also... I know you're not supposed to do things by committee, but they did. It's born out of, out of committee. It's this, it's this... I want to say compromise, but it's more... It's more um, 
dynamic than compromise. This is a lived spirituality born out of the needs of the time to be held by the common people. So the 39 articles bear this out. And then, of course, the Book of Common Prayer, which until the last century was the prayer language of everybody in this nation, which is almost impossible now to think about because things have changed so much. But I'm sure there are people in this room who are used to walking with um, elderly people through the closing uh, times of their lives. And you can be sitting with somebody and they may not be able to listen or to register what you're saying. But you can start reading a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And what you will often find is that somebody you thought was fairly inaccessible starts to speak with you because the words are still there. And it's the most extraordinary thing, prayers held by everybody. Now this has changed a lot, of course, partly because uh, it's, it's a different society. We don't have the same um, sense of everybody worshipping anymore. We've also moved from the Book of Common Prayer to through the ASB, and now common worship. Common again, you see, common. And the common worship is this great, gorgeous, sort of gourmet dinner of prayer, but you don't get quite the same repeated prayers in it because there's prayer for every season, which is fabulous and creative, but you don't get quite the same repeated sense of, of prayer in it. So this is prayer for the people. It was expected to be held by the people, and it kept people together. And just imagine for a moment what it would have been like, just, just as thinking about the Benedictine world, when nobody was more than an hour in this country from a, a monastery, and you could hear the bells everywhere. Imagine what it was like suddenly for a society where all the prayer was in a language you could understand. Now, for some people, that would have been awful. Not because they could understand it, but because they had lost what they had. And we cannot underestimate the profound power of loss in our lives. So it must have been horrendous for many. And for many, suddenly being able to own and hear prayer, because not many people would have read still, of course, hear prayer in your own language, would have been utterly mind-blowing. Then as the generations go by, it becomes the norm, and so everybody holds the prayer. Now, if you look in something like the Book of Common Prayer, of course, there are many prayers in it now where we think, gosh, if I had to have a diet of BCP every week, I would go mad. That could be some I mean, I've heard people say that, that some people respond, who people get angry because they don't understand the language. But of course, at the time, it was heart-opening, it was eye-watering that they could understand the prayers of the people to God. And that is a hallmark of Anglican spirituality. So you could also argue that as the BCP has moved downstream, well, that's also the hallmark of Anglican spirituality. We are called in Anglican spirituality to speak what we understand. We are called to speak to God in our own language. We are called to the vernacular. That's one of the hallmarks of, 
of Anglican spirituality, which is really, really easy to forget about. So I'm just going to read you such a familiar collect from the BCP, which is in your leaflet too. You'll hear it tonight, those of you who are going to evening prayer. The third collect at every evensong. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord. And by thy great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of thy only Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a rhythm, I mean, I like it, obviously. There is a rhythm to it and a beauty, and there's a familiarity, because I know it. But for some people, of course, even this is alien. So this wouldn't be common. And it's the common which is the hallmark. I'll crack on a bit, because we haven't got much time. So I'm going to end with reading a poem. But another thing which is a hallmark of Christian spirituality is there was a commitment to it from the early days, and it's still the case. And it's not the only manifestation of Christian spirituality where this is a hallmark, but it is. There is a commitment to life being transformed through engagement with God. It's not just observance. It's not just piety. It's not just being seen to do the right thing. It's not just public prayer. There was an expectation that this access to prayer life in a new way was all about being transformed as well. We are transformed by the presence of God in the world and that God is the God of the whole world. Now, all of this became possible to imagine and to experience once the language was opened out to people. So suddenly... There was this sense of God is the God of the whole world. God is the God of our language. God is the God of the people around you. The poets, the great writers of the faith, started to, to write about this. And beauty and language have been consistently important in Anglican spirituality. Not because things can only be spiritual when they're beautiful and wonderfully phrased, but because it matters. Because in beauty, and in finding the, the mot juste to express our faith, we are somehow honouring and crafting a response to God. So you get a great literary tradition in Anglican spirituality. Because finding a language, which is not repugnant, finding a language to sing our praises to God is important. Finding a context to worship is important. And this isn't just for yesterday. We're sitting in one of the, the most extraordinary cathedrals in the country, and cathedral worship is growing. Is it not, Elizabeth? Cathedral worship is growing. It's fascinating. There's something at the heart of Christian spirituality expressed in the Anglican tradition, which is still meaningful for people. There's beauty, there's language, there's transformation, there is the expectation that our God is the God of the whole world, which dates back to some of the very earliest missions to England, where there was encouragement from the Pope to make sure that the sacred sites of this country were not trashed, that they were kept, kept intact. There's a letter from Gregory the Great to St Melitus. That's very interesting. It tells you a bit about that, about how to conduct oneself around the pagan sites of worship in this country. We do not trash them. 
we encourage people to know that these sites are, are Christ sites as well as what they've done before. We encourage people to know Christ in their own context. God is the God of the whole world. I am sadly galloping now, but I'm going to end with reading a poem, George Herbert, Love 3. This is a profound expression of Anglican spirituality. It's the beauty of language. It's the poetic response to the love of God. And it's also about wrestling and being authentic with God, which is one of the aspects of God being the God of the whole world and the God of us and allowing ourselves to be transformed through worship. This is part of Anglican spirituality. Love bade me welcome, yet my heart, my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. <laughs>